Welcome to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Podcast. Join Danny on a journey through the historical island of Ireland, its people and the wild Atlantic way, which is Ireland's last frontier. Experience the music and the culture that makes up the longest coastal driving route in the world. Now, please welcome your host, Danny Houlihan. Dear Eve, August Fortugalier, Welcome to you all this morning for our special show on Christmas Day. Live from the Balav Winanown studio, Winanown Ashonana Kunde Kiri. Also webcasting our show directly to our powerful Ballybunum YXQ internet radio station, streaming in the clouds, which is at full throttle this morning. I hope you are safe and well. The time here in the studio on the banks of the Shannon River, we're down on the door of about 8 o'clock a.m. Irish time. It's going to be a lovely day and a special day for us all around the globe. And here along the banks of the Shannon River on the mighty Wild Atlantic Way, County Kerry Island. Before I entered the studio, I took a short walk along the golden strand of Ballybunny. The tide was beating its never-ending waves on the shoreline of Ballybunny. It was magic. With the lofty ruin of Ballybunny Castle standing proud over the two golden sandy beaches now in the last stages of decay. Even in the darkness, the lights of County Clare were like stars in the distance, and the lighthouse at Dupeg, a lone sentinel, directing its welcoming beacon to ships inward bound from around the world to the Shannon Estuary. In this programme, I'll be looking back at a few places I have visited here in North Kerry with Danny Houlihan's Irish experience during the year. All these special places have a cultural past which surrounds them, adding to the rich history and the culture that is our famous North Kerry Island. Oh boy, it makes up a fantastic tapestry of our Irish culture. So stay tuned in everyone from around the globe and we welcome you here this morning. But first, a bit of music from my famous pipes. I recorded a few years ago, a track entitled The Last of the Druids.
The last of the Druids, a throwback to the time of the Celtic Druids, which held sway over the lands of ancient Aeon. Again, another subject I'll deal with in another podcast. You're listening to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience, here on the banks of the Shannon River, County Kerry, Ireland, and webcasting on Ballybunham YXQ Internet Radio, from the ball of Winnown Studio, Winnown the Shunna Kunde Kiri. Now, moving on this morning. During the course of my podcast this year, I have visited several castles and special places and explored their rich history and culture and the reasons they were constructed in their respective locations here on the landscape of North Kerry and still hold an air of mystery and grandeur. A throwback to the days of the overlords which are now gone. Today, the ruins of Ballybunion, Listowel, and the famous Carrickfoyle Castle draws visitors from around the globe. Special attention must be given to the fact that at the beginning, the O'Connor Kerry clan of Rikunakur were the reigning clan. The O'Connors took their long and noble lineage from Kier, son of Queen Maeve of Connacht and Fergus Moon Macri of Ulster. Kier ruled the ancient kingdom of Kier from around 75 AD. During the dawn of the Norman conquest around 1166 and later on to the arrival of the hated Cromwellian forces on the lands of the O'Connors, set into motion the building of fortifications on the landscape of North Kerry, which put a stranglehold on the old clan system which was waning. Not one religious building and its people escaped with the wrath of the ongoing invaders. These strongholds were constructed in strategic areas where there was a water supply, abundance of food, but importantly, there was a farmer's settlement there, which was either wiped out or cleared out or even taken over. In the case of Ballybunion, there was a promontory fort of the clan Conrad there, a well-elevated site, underground chambers for storage. So the building of a castle, it was perfect. Listowel as well, having a fine position overlooking the river field, and again, food and water sources, unlike other places like Ballybunnan, a settlement. Caligafoyle Castle was built by the Irish chieftain, O'Connor, took a more different approach, with a place for docking boats and a high protective barn for defence. These are just a few of the podcasts we're going to go back over, and there will be more, so stay tuned. First off, it's my own castle here in Ballybunnan. So sit back on Christmas Day, and enjoy this podcast, Ballybunnan. Welcome to episode 9 of my podcast series. My name is Danny Houlihan. I'm a historian, author and musician. In this episode, I will cover the history to date I have researched of the Promontory Fort and Castle in Ballybunnan, North Kerry. Through its people, its culture and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Strategically located, Ballybunnan Castle commands extensive views of the plains of North Kerry and the inward Shannon Estuary to Foynes and Limerick. This early site has a rich golden past of North Kerry's history and culture. The castle, elevated above sea level on a large projecting outcrop of rock overlooking two golden sandy beaches. This elevated promontory site was fortified many hundreds of years previously, during a period of Ireland's history between the Iron Age 
an early Christian period, around 500 AD. Early settlers of the Clan Conra, later O'Connor Kerry, have been associated with the site and the area stretching back into antiquity to the arrival of the famous clan. Construction of the Tower Massive artworks were undertaken on the landward side of the promontory. A large high protective mound was constructed to a height of 8 foot and was 24 foot thick with a deep fossa at its entrance. Another fossa existed 160 feet from its outer mound. The entire site was at that point surrounded by a high wide protective mound. The purpose was for protective and defensive. The high banks gave excellent views to the eastern and western landscape from any would-be attacker. The enclosure above gave its inhabitants protection from any attack which could be mounted from the beach below. What supplemented their daily diet? During this period, the Shannon estuary abounded with fresh Irish salmon, which could be speared locally. In the nearby oak woods of Conocunor, Beale and along the coastline of Ballybunion, the Irish red deer roamed. Venison could be obtained and killed at the nearby rock called Corrigna Fiola, or the Blood Rock. Their dwellings were primitive, constructed of dry stone walls with the hides of wild animals, which were used to roof the structures. Stone was the available raw material in the Ballybunin area at that time. The promontory fort was effective for any clan or resident family to survive in relative peace. Enhancing the safety and additional storage, another unique feature was added, which completed the site. It was called a souterrain or underground chamber. Sous terrain takes its name from the French translation sous terre, meaning below land. These elaborate underground chambers were constructed for storage or if the settlement was attacked. The construction work of these ancient structures was enormous, with large deep excavations below ground to facilitate the foundations, most of which no mortar was used. The then primitive art of the dry stone mason was clearly important, as every stone had to be shaped to fit into position in order so as the roof and walls could withstand the sheer weight of the backfilling material that was excavated during the construction. Every souterrain was different in length and size, depending on the application it was intended for. From the available history, we know that an escape hole led from a dwelling above the ground to the chamber then one could enter the chamber at different heights and levels. Exits from the structures was only known to the occupants and normally led to a safe place beyond the structure. The entire area where the promontory fort stands today was excavated using primitive stone tools. Thousands of tons of earth and mud was excavated from the site while the passageways and underground rooms were being constructed. Once the souterrains were finally completed, the backfilling and the entire area was backfilled and sealed for eternity. Then small primitive circular buildings were constructed, made of wattle and mud, 
on the promontory above. 1169 onwards saw the arrival of the Normans and the conquest of Ireland, with Norman knights, horsemen and archers, which put to an end the old clan system, with the gradual takeover of the old lands held by O'Connor. South of the present town of Ballybunion existed an enclave of Iraqi Connors. This area was called Ballyay, or the townland of the deer. This community lacked for nothing. The arrival of the Normans posed no threat, as there was no system which could take away from their ancient customs and structures. The people survived alongside with the new arrivals. However, in the future, this would be their downfall. Around the year 1290, the Bunyan or Bunzons came to prominence in the area, and thus the name of the town could possibly derive its appellation from them, as they were the retainers and builders of the much-loved scenic Geraldine Tower House of Ballybunnan Castle. The name of Bunyan in the following centuries became the international name of the town, which originated from Bunzon, a French name during the Geraldine period of North Kerry. We read in many documents of the period of the connections with the Geraldines of the Newcastle West Manor. Milo Bunsen, who was a juror of the Newcastle West Manor. Traditionally, in the North Kerry area, the name Willem Oge was used, but the correct name was Willem Oge Bunsen. Oge is a French name and has connections with the Fitzgeralds of Limerick. Ballybunnan is attributed to one such Willemog Bannon or Bunzon, but according to other sources, Bonanogs or Bunzon. The Desmond Rebellion and Ballybunnan. Willemog A. Bunzon or Bunyan was a rebel and rose up during the Desmond Rebellion, resulting in his castle and lands being lost to the crown of King James I, and himself, Willemog A. Bunyan, attainted losing his lands of Ballybunion, Drummond and Gutnuskehi. Seeing young Bunyan in trouble, Thomas Vismaris, 16th Lord Kerry, crept into favour with the king, having the castle and lands of young Bunyan confirmed unto him by letters patent 1612. Thomas Vismaris, Lord Kerry During the time of Thomas Vismaris, Lord Kerry, circa 1612, the castle or tower house we know today was constructed from the stones and rubble of the first Geraldine castle of Bunzon or Bunyan. The tower rose from the promontory fort edge to a height of over 80 feet and was constructed of black coarse limestone quarried locally. The castle had four floors above ground level. The basement was 29 foot long by 12 foot wide. The main wooden arch door opened into the castle basement from the southern side. Access to the roof was by means of a spiral stairs which went in an anti-clockwise direction. All floors were laid on rough car bills, and the castle's second floor was vaulted to lighten the overall structure of the tower house. The windows on all floors were lit by unglazed slits, some of which are still in position today, but damaged due to time and battle. The battlements were three-stepped, However, no trace remains today. Renaissance maps of the 1500s. The Italian cartographer Baptista Boesio's map marks the castle as Castle Manion. Other maps, 
the castle is known as Castle Bale Bonan, and Speed's map of Munster mentions Castle Mannion. The death of Thomas Fismarus, Lord Kerry, 1612-1613 Cited in the records of the Inquisition into the death of Thomas Fismarus, 16th Lord Kerry, we read on the 17th of October, 1613, that the Castrumville et Terra de Balamanonig had passed to Lord Kerry's brother, Patrick Fismarus. The latter, his lands escaped the confiscations of 1651. Richard Hare, Earl of Listole. In the year 1783, we read in the annals that Richard Hare, Earl of Listole, was in possession of the castle and lands of Ballybunion. This is where the story of Ballybunion really begins. The Earl of Listole quickly banned the fair in Bale, with the total loss of revenue to the area. The ability to sell local-made produce was now at an end. The fair was then moved to Listole. 1834 saw the Earl rent land to George Hewson of Innesmore, a local landlord. Parceled in with this rented land was part Santels and several plots of land in the town of Ballybunion. George Hewson quickly began to exploit his new rented estate in the area where Ballybunion is today. At that period, there was less than 20 houses built under his watchful eye. In fact, the town was planned at the beginning as a place for landed gentry to stay and take to the small strand we call today the Ladies' Beach. Ballybunion, in 1835, was not visited like it is today, but was becoming known around the country as a place for bracing sea air, lovely cliff walks and healthy well-being. George Hewson quickly moved fast in the extraction of his acquired wealth. The construction of houses needed material, and the landscape of Ballybunnan had just that asset. Sand, where the famous Ballybunnan golf course is now today. Plenty of limestone for blocks on the promontory fort. This limestone was ground down to lime at George Hewson's new lime kiln, which he had constructed within the sand dunes. Mixed with tons of shells, a ready-made mix was at hand to sell on to Listole and Limerick. Early on in the period, the landlord quarried at the southern sides of the promontory fort, with the lofty castle above. Local labour was employed daily to drill holes in the rock, between four to six feet apart, and set black powder charges to blow the rock, a very dangerous job. When blasted, large slabs of anything up to six by five foot square, depending on the fracture, was obtained. The blocks were then hand-chiselled to exact measurement, on site by local labourers, finished and placed on horse and cart to be sold to whomever wanted them. This was very lucrative for George Hewson, who continued to extract the stone, regardless of the effects on the area and its environment. It should be noted that this dangerous, hard, laborious work was carried out within the coming and going tides in the Ballybunnan area. From the 1850s onwards, more houses were being constructed within the town of Ballybunion. So the demolition was increasing at the front and sides of the promontory fort at an alarming rate. Gradually the rock was eroded, so much it reached the inner mud. Up to an acre on all sides of the fort was demolished and removed for building purposes. To facilitate building houses in the area, a building society was set up in Listole around the year 1888 which facilitated loans for the purchase of land 
build houses in Ballybunion on the George Hewson estate. It should be noted at this stage that George Hewson would have the land purchased from the various landlords in the area. 1888 saw the arrival of the monorail system to Ballybunion, and the landlord seized this opportunity to increase his revenue at any cost. It was during this period to the 1900s that the complete destruction of the protective rock of the promontory of the castle had taken place. One notable incident took place at the end of the 1860s, when the landlord ordered charges to be set at full on the then weakening fortification. The workers laid the charges and ran. A series of loud, echoing explosions could be heard in the surrounding districts. However, this time, the damage took another turn. The outer wall of the tower house collapsed in the blast, leaving the castle with only one wall standing. This angered locals who protested to George Hewson to halt the practice, which he did, but it was too late. The community were outraged, as Ballybunham by this time was now a major tourist destination, and the castle and cliffs were regarded as special places of interest. George Hewson was not finished, though. During the period from 1888 onwards, he had a line of the Lartigue monorail extended to his sand dunes, which at that period he had allowed the new fledgling golf club committee to use for free. Thousands of tons of sand was taken from the sand dunes by using five-ton sand hoppers to the stole, with the Lartigue railway pulling the heavy loads. One huge sand dune was totally demolished during this period. Ironically, George Hewson became interested in the game of golf and was the club's second president. Apart from the fact that he charged the club £12 yearly for the use of his sand dunes. George Hewson, the beloved landlord of Ballybunion, died in 1896. His son George took over the estate and farm in Innesmore, continuing the tradition of the Hewson family. George also sold 72 acres of land to Universal Radio Syndicate in London for the building of the radio stations. I will be covering this history in another show. At this stage, thousands of tons of material had been removed from the Ballybunham foreshores of the stole, both sand and stone. This also included seaweed and shells from the kitchen middens, which were used as fertiliser. Today, all that remains to be seen of the landlord's work in Ballybunion are the blast holes from the face of the promontory fort on the sides of the famous Castle Green. Sadly, the course of time and tide will finally complete the work of destruction. While he was a good man and started many enterprises such as the dairies and was involved in the tourism industry and the monorail, we now have to count the cost of coastal erosion and the loss of our unique heritage. I hope you've enjoyed our brief visit back to the promontory fort, the castle and the famous landlord. This research is ongoing and will be updated in the future. Through his people, his culture, and its famous Castle Green. This is truly Danny Hulham's Irish experience. That's Paddy Bunnan from its famous history and past. The castle still stands defined to the elements and in the last stages of decay with its promontory fort being eroded by sea on a yearly basis and also by the actions of the local landlords way back in antiquity. Indeed, it would be a stormy night that the famous ruins will finally slip under the waves of the Shannon lost forever unless the castle is properly restored. 
You're listening to Danny Hulahan's Irish Experience here from the Bolle Vulanon studio Vinon the Shunna Kunde Kiri and webcasting internationally on the Ballybunan YXQ Internet Radio from the southwest coast of Ireland. Next, we travel inland nine miles to the market town of Listole and to Listole Castle, which today has been preserved and stands as a beacon in local history in our Kerry. Welcome to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience Podcast. Join Danny on a journey through the historical island of Ireland, its people and the wild Atlantic Way, which is Ireland's last frontier. Experience the music and the culture that makes up the longest coastal driving route in the world. Now, please welcome your host, Danny Houlihan. Kate me the father, good young Clarsha. Welcome once more to my Irish Experience. Over the years, I have visited many historical places in search of local history and culture. It never ceases to amaze me. We in Ireland have so much to see and explore. Before I start my outward journey beyond my Ballybunan base with my series, I would like to take this opportunity to express my thanks to those of you who have tuned in from around the world to hear our unique history along the wild Atlantic way to date. I move inland for a short visit, nine miles to a market town, which in the past has had many historical links with the old seaside town of Ballybunion. One place I visit regularly, and a place I have played my pipes over the years, and as a piper, I have always been made very welcome there by its people. It's known internationally for its writers and the Listowel races. That is Listowel, County Kerry, Ireland home to the late John B. Keane and Brian McMahon, both world-renowned famous writers who have left their legacy to all of us, and they encourage us all to write and explore the rich, diverse history and culture that is our famous North Kerry. Indeed, without their kind words to me in the past, this podcast series may never have happened. I therefore dedicate this brief visit to their memory. Listowel has many attractions, which adds to his proud literary history. The town can boast of many great traditions and that of promoting our Irish language, its annual St. Patrick's Day Parade and its famous Writers Week, which puts Listowel on the international stage. St. John's Arts and Cultural Theatre is one of the most celebrated in Ireland, highlighting Irish music and international acts, which adds to the cultural base, which is at the core of Listowel. Towering above the famous market town of Listolnar, Kerry Island, on an elevated site, is the historic ruins of Listol Castle. Situated facing the beautiful River Feel, near an old strategic crossing point on the river. Now long since forgotten, and its location lost in the concourse of time. Listol Castle, still to this day, holds an air of grandeur, a throwback to our Anglo-Norman castle design and history. Its fine cut stone design has all the hallmarks of the bygone artisan stonemasons, whose hand and chisels are silent now. Indeed, it can be stated that the workmanship on the castle is a fine example of their unique legacy. Listore Castle stands on a much older site, no long since forgotten. But like many castles and ruins in the North Kerry area, 
more archaeological excavations are needed to ascertain their full history, which will add to our knowledge and promote our history and our tourism industry. The castle has a height of 50 metres above ground level and is four storeys high. The front of the castle has two towers remaining, joined by a curtain wall with a unique central arch, similar to that of Bunratty County Clare. This similarity should be noted. The fine cut stone walls of the castle are two metres thick and were shaped by hand using a chisel and limestone, which was obtained from a local quarry. Its windows were pointed and square in design. The castle, when it was fully built, extended to the rear, near the river. Today, only the front section remains of Listall Castle, but gives us a unique view and perspective of the structure and its height. Access to the floors is by means of a cut stone stairs, which is still in position today. The castle was lit by fine vertical windows, which cast light onto all the floors of the castle. In the year of 1569, we read in the Annals of Ireland that Listowel Castle stood defiant against the forces of Queen Elizabeth by the Fitzmaurice's Lords of Kerry, who held the castle and lands at that time. In the year of 1604, Thomas's Morris made a submission to King James for his offences against the Crown, surrendering his estate, whereupon Fitzmaurice was pardoned, having the lands been conferred to him by letters patent 1612. In the decades to follow, the Fitzmaurices became totally loyal to the Crown. This is well documented in the annals of Irish history. Pacata Hibernia states, quote, Sir Charles Wilmot and his forces besieged the castle by tunnelling under the rear of the building and by laying mines which enabled the English soldiers to effect a breach and gain access to the castle, unquote. Sir Charles Wilmot was later elevated to the position of Earl and created the Earl of Athlone after the taking of the castle in the Stole in Arkerry. On that fateful day of the siege, nine men were put to the sword by the Crown's forces. It has been stated that women and children were left free into the Irish countryside. However, one young boy, a son of Lord Kerry, was secretly removed from the castle on that fateful day and hidden in a cave locally. However, Wilmot's spies and forces had found the location of the child and reported back to the castle whereupon Wilmot found the child and brought him to England. Richard Hare, in 1783, purchased the manorial rights of the Fitzmaurice's Lords of Kerry, whose conquered lands extended to Ballybunnan Castle. In 1923, the castle was brought under the control of the Commissioners of Public Works. Later on, the OPW, or Office of Public Works, undertook and finished a fine restoration work on the castle, which is now open to the public and is a major tourist attraction in the Listowel and North Kerry area. As I leave Listowel Castle, I look back at its fine construction. One can just imagine the scene of the siege on that fateful day. The sounds of horses and swordsmen preparing to attack the castle. The frightening explosions from the tunnels beneath the ruin where the charges were laid, 
then echoing explosions over the flowing river field. The shouts of the swordsmen and the clash of swords, relentless in the act of defending the castle. Then a breach being made and the castle garrison falling to the invaders. A young boy being spirited away by a warder from the imminent attack, only to be hidden in a cave, to be found later and brought to England. Black smoke billowing from the high Listole Tower and screams from the families and the garrison from the high lofty battlements filling the clear Listole air. A frightening experience, a frightening scene. Today, adjacent to the castle is the Shanachie Centre, Kerry Writers Museum. This fine building welcomes visitors from around the world on a yearly basis. Our Irish music, heritage and culture is promoted there as well as the history of our famous writers. This is well worth a visit, and I recommend a visit to the centre, which affords a Cade Mille Falta to all who visit the place. Adjacent to the castle, there is a fabulous river walk, which skirts the grassy river bank with wild birds and fish in their natural habitat. A walk along the river is the most when you visit the stole and the castle. The town boasts of many amenities and a fine hotel, the Arms. Another unique feature of Listole Town is the Garden of Europe. Like all other Listole amenities, is well taken care of. And a visit to this special place, which has a variety of trees, is a must. The Garden is the only one in Ireland with a monument in the memory of those who died in the Holocaust during World War II. The Garden of Europe dates back to 1995 and it features more than 3,000 trees and shrubs that represents the members of the EU. The Garden of Europe has another unique feature, a bust of the poet Schiller, who was the author of the European anthem, The Ode to Joy, which was set to the music of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. The Garden of Europe is opened all year round for locals and visitors alike to enjoy. I have walked the Garden of Europe and I have experienced its beautiful surroundings. It's well worth a visit here in our lovely Listole. As I leave Listole, I take one last journey on the Lartig Railway, which has been rebuilt in Listole by an energetic committee. This is well worth a visit for all to experience the history of one of the first commercial lines which operated in the British Isles between the years of 1888 to 1924. This famous line ran from the Stoll to Ballybunion. I have covered the Lartigue in another podcast, so check it out. This attraction is open to the public and again is well worth a visit. All in all, a visit to our lovely Listole in our Kerry Island is a must for all to visit and see. I recommend Listole when you visit Ireland. I hope you've enjoyed this short visit to Listole. I should add Listole has fine accommodation, restaurants, bars, coffee shops, hardware shops, just to mention a few. I will be back to Listole in another special episode to cover more. Before I leave lovely Listole, please leave no trace. Take nothing from the natural environment but memories and pictures to remember your visit to lovely Listole. So for now, Slán.
lovely list all. I hope you enjoyed that slice of history, and again, it's just a slice. That tune was Thunderstorm from one of my albums many years ago called King of the Pipers. You listen to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience here on Christmas Day from the Vodafone-owned studio of Vinon, the Shunana, Kunde, Kiri, and webcasting in the cloud from our Ballybunham YXQ internet radio from Ireland. Next, we dodge the incoming cannon fire from the Queen's fleet on the Shannon Estuary. A Gaelic chieftain standing defiant against the Elizabethan forces led by Sir William Pelham and his forces. O'Connor Kerry, chieftain of his clan. This is Carrigafoyle. Today, Ballylongford's most famous iconic castle stands as one of the last Irish-built castles by an Irish chieftain in Ireland, visited by thousands of visitors every year. There is a car park located in front of the castle, so tour buses and cars can park and visit this famous ruin. Known as the most impregnable castle in Munster, Carrigafoyle. Now let's visit Carrigafoyle and experience one of Ireland's famous Gaelic castles and climb the steps to the high battlements above. Welcome to my third episode in the series. In this episode, I will look back at the history of the O'Connor Kerry clan, its castle, the siege, and the scenic area of Valley Longford that makes up a rich tapestry of Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Carrigavoy Castle is located on the outskirts of the scenic village of Valley Longford, North Kerry. After leaving Asti Village, Continue along the road for several kilometres until you reach a sign on the road to Carrickville Castle. Take a left and pass through Rosheen. The landscape opens up along the estuary on your right with waders and seabirds in their natural habitats. The road winds its way along scenic views to the majestic ruins of the Gaelic castle of O'Connor Kerry. This is the rock of the chasm, Carrickville. The O'Connor Kerry clan can trace their long and noble lineage back to Keir, son of Queen Maeve of Connacht and Fergus Moormachry of Ulster. Maeve was born in Roscommon in a place called Rachrochan. Keir was, according to the manuscripts of the time, educated in a place near Abbey Field, County Limerick, and spent many years there, being educated in the old ways of ancient Ireland. Once Keir's education was completed, he was elevated by the people of the area, now known as North Kerry, as Prince. This title and his many deeds afforded Keir the honour of having the area known as Kiri. In the centuries to follow, the county would bear his illustrious name, Keir or Kerry. In the preceding decades to follow, Keir's ancestors would take on the role as protectors and upholders of the Catholic faith, and the monastic centres 
which dotted the Kerry landscape, even down to the swing of a broadsword against its enemies, both the Vikings and the Norman invaders. Early Christian centres, churches and monasteries were established under their era as kings of Kerry, as well as the works of art like the Liz Lockton Processional Cross, now in the National Museum of Ireland. St. Brendan, who was born in 484 AD, was the internationally celebrated navigator. He was a member of the Kira Altraha and a descendant of Kir. It is stated that St. Brendan, in his epic voyages, landed in America prior to Christopher Columbus, thus spreading the word of God to the New World. I will visit sites and wells associated with St. Brendan in another episode. 966 A.D. Concouver In 966 A.D., the name Concouver appears in the history of the clan. This name will be used for future generations as O'Connor. It appears that Conacour had a castle at Riachnafaila on Dune Promontory, Ballybonion. There, the clan prospered for many decades, until the dark forces of the Viking and Norman invaders arrived in the area. After the chieftain died, his son took over. It should be noted that on Dune Promontory, the ruins of the castle still stands, in defiant to the elements, a reminder of the clan and their illustrious history. The remains of this castle can be found on Dune Promontory, Ballybonion, facing the famous Bramore Cliffs. Battle of Clontarf, 1014. On Good Friday, 23rd of April, 1014, Irish chiefs stood defiant on the battlefields of Clontarf, facing the Viking power of Europe. The massed armies were led by Brian Boru High King, and forming part of that great army was a battalion from Riachnafaila, Dune Promontory Ballybunnan, led by their chief, Bedan O'Connacour. It was a decisive battle for the Irish, and the result was a win. But for the battalion, they lost their chief, Bedan, and also High King Brian Boru, who was slain on that fateful day. 1169 saw the arrival in Ireland of the Normans. Their military conquest had begun, and the fortune of the O'Connor-Kerry clan was to suffer with the loss of sizable ancestral lands south of the Cashin River. In 1470, John O'Connor Kerry, aided by his wife Margaret, initiated the building of the fine friary of Liz Lockton for the Franciscan Order and his private church at Carrigafoyle. Indeed, it can be stated that under his leadership, the art of the stonemason was used to highlight his legacy. In another programme, I will visit Liz Lockton Abbey and hear of its unique history. In the year 1485, the famous chief of the clan, John O'Connor Kerry, died, and according to his wishes, was interred within the confines of the friary which he founded. This ceremony was marked by all of the clan, with deep emotion, with his wife and two sons present at the burial. Succeeding John was his son Connor, who took the title as chieftain of his clan and the whole area of Arachde Connor. Connor was an able chief and moved quickly with marriage alliances to strengthen his hand. The building of Carrigafoyle Castle. In the year 1490, Connor Leo O'Connor Kerry commenced the building of Carrigafoyle Castle. Carrigafoyle, when built, was known as the most impregnable castle in Ireland. Fortifications ordered. The Earl of Desmond dispatched orders to the castle garrison, ordering its defences to be strengthened immediately. 
The castle was garrisoned by a number of 19 Spaniards and 50 Irish. That included women and children, who were all living in the castle at the time. Under Captain Julian, the garrison and all hands were put to use to fortify the famous castle, expecting a support fleet of ships from Philip of Spain. Day and night, by hand and axe, the clan and his people rose as massive defences. And when finished, realised the long and weary wait for siege was now at their castle door. The Siege of Carrigafoy Castle Palm Sunday, April 1580 The castle was strategically located, thus as one of the most defensible castles on the landscape of North Kerry. It became prime target of the English military, who were burning the countryside around them. It was not long before the Queen's fleet, under Admiral Willem Winter, made its way from the mouth of the Shannon Estuary, passing Bramore Cliffs and Bale Strand, finally dropping anchor off Bunnaclugger Bay and dispatched their troops and offloaded their five massive cannons to the shoreline. Once the English had established their positions under the command of Lord Justice Pelham, directly across from the castle, and their ships in position in the bay, the Lord Justice, dressed in his full military attire, rode up to the defended castle on horseback and requested that the castle surrender immediately to him under the name of Queen Elizabeth I. The response from the O'Connor Kerry chieftain and his garrison was a musket shot which blew off the commander's helmet. Narrowly defying death, the Lord Chief Justice returned to his camp and dispatched orders to the Queen's fleet to deploy all ordnance on the castle. Wave upon wave, cannonballs played upon Carrigafoyle Castle's defences without mercy. Only minor damage was inflicted, if any. The barrage was heard according to the annals of Ireland in Galway. The cannons fired relentlessly at the castle from the estuary side and the landward side. Carrigafoyle stood defiant. Finally, on the 29th of March, a breach was made by the reigning cannon. A lighted candle placed by a female servant in an act of treachery in a window nearest its weakest point, adjacent to one of the vaulted rooms. The barrage focused on this area, resulting in the wall and floor collapsing, killing all below it. O'Connor was not surrendering and continued to hold firm with his garrison, removing the stairs banisters in readiness for the impending attack. Captain Macworth stormed the breach and a lengthy sword fight took place between the Irish and English soldiers. Casualties were taken by the English in attempting to take the upper floors as the O'Connor was above them and after removing the banisters it proved difficult for the English. Finally, after days of sword fighting, the castle fell with the occupants, women and children hanged from the nearby trees. O'Connor escaped and took to the woods for sanctuary to his people. However, it was not lucky for three old friars at Lislockton Friary who were put to the sword by Pelham's forces on that fateful day, others taking refuge in the community of Ballylongford. I will visit the friary during another part of our series and experience its rich history. Elizabethan pen and ink drawing, 1580. During the siege of Carrigafoyle Castle, the taking was documented by a pen and ink drawing depicting the scene of the castle on the day and the positions of the cannon that day. This unique historic illustration depicts three large ships of the English fleet anchored off Carrig Island in full military operations against the castle. The large siege guns pointed at the battlements, discharging their massive ordnance. The smoke from the discharge of the mighty guns 
wafting over the Shannon Tide. Five large siege guns with massive ordnance were placed on the landward side of the castle, facing the massive stone defence walls protecting the castle. These massive barns were erected under the orders of Captain Julian, who pushed the garrison of Carrigafoyle to the limit when under construction. Both inner and outer walls had plenty of lookout points. This made the castle virtually impregnable. From the drawing we can see large earthworks, which were constructed on the estuary side of the castle on Carrig Island. These aided the castle's defences. The drawing identifies a large belt of trees on the estuary side and landward side, where the large siege guns were placed. Nothing remains of these trees today, only stumps in the mud when the tide goes out. The tents of the English military were located near Carrigafoyle Church. This church is still in existence today, but in ruins. Leaving Carrigafoyle Castle, we can take away the fact that the county took its name from the clan and that the family were held in high regard in the surrounding countryside. The nearby towns had castles or structures by O'Connor, indicating the value of its local builders, craftsmen and artistic stonemasons. That work was repaid by the chieftain to them with their tenure on their land on the landscape of North Kerry. I will return again to Carrigafoyle and pay tribute to the clan, a part of our culture, a part of our past. I hope you've enjoyed our visit to Carrigafoyle. Now we take a short visit to the famous island, Scattery Island, the holy island on the Shannon Estuary. Here on Christmas Day, Welcome once more to Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience. In this episode, I will cross the Shannon Estuary to County Clare and relate the story of a holy island on the river, a saint and a fierce serpent called the Cahog, all interwoven into Danny Houlihan's Irish Experience. As the mist rolls back on the Shannon Estuary, the site of a round tower and old ecclesiastical buildings can be seen. This is the holy island of Inishkohig or Scattery Island. The island of Inishkohig takes its name from the Cahok or the sea serpent which terrorised the island. Tradition has been handed down from generation to generation that when Saint Senan arrived on the island, an angel directed him to the highest point. Senan then ordered the monster to vacate the island, which it did, and it did not stop until the creature arrived at Dulok Lake, Mount Callan. St. Sinan was born in a place called Mylock, Kilrush, County Clare, in 488. St. Sinan's parents were Eleman and Congella. Various sources have stated that he was the grandson of a monarch of Spain. St. Sinan's birth was prophetically announced by St. Patrick on his visit to County Limerick. Sinan, as a young boy, was placed under Abbot Cassidy. Later on in his education, he was placed under St. Nall at Kilmanagh, County Kilkenny. The Saint's Missionary Life St. Sinan, in his lifetime, established many churches. Sinan established a church in Inniscorti in the year 510 or 512. The area is today known as Temple Shannon. Cornwall, St. Sinan's Cove. In France, Brittany. At Plusane, Church of Sinan. Sinan is also believed to have visited Menevia, Rome and Tours, returning to Ireland around 520 as an elderly man at that stage.
In Ireland, he established a church in Inishkara, County Cork. Inishluana, a Deer Island, Inishmoor, and Mutton Island. The saint had several churches in County Clare, four blessed wells, such as the Blessed Well in Kilrush, Kilkee, and Wellacha. The monastery was founded between the years of 535 and 540. Saints that visited the island of Inishkahig were St. Kieran and St. Brendan. The monastic area of Inishkahig or Scattery Island. Baronies of Moyarta and Clonderlawn Thoman, Barony of Conello, County Limerick, and part of Narkerry from the river field to the Atlantic. Legend of the local chieftain. A local chieftain feared St. Sinan and plotted the saint's downfall. He engaged the power of a local Celtic druid who was brought to the Holy Island. On the approach to Scattery, a massive wave rose up and drowned the chieftain and the druid, halting their evil deed. Women on Scattery Island Tradition relates that St. Sinan's mission forbade women on the island, but females could land on the shoreline. Cliganor, the Golden Bell Tradition relates that St. Sinan was out one day in the company of two other saints, at a place called Kilsenan, two miles northeast of Kilkee. During a lengthy conversation, the Lord was called upon to make a choice who was his chosen one. The heavens opened and the golden bell descended on the saint's head, indicating the stature of St. Sinan. St. Sinan's peace and that of his celibate monks was relatively short-lived when a West Cork woman called Conora arrived on the shoreline of Scattery Island to die. St. Conora was born in Bantry, County Cork, and was an anchorite, a very holy woman of high standing, whose feast day was the 28th of January. St. Conor was also the patron saint of sailors and fishermen. Tradition relates that in a dream, the Lord appeared to Conor and directed her to go to the holy island of Scattery. In that dream, St. Conor saw all the churches in Ireland, but Scattery Island stood out as a shining light and assigned to her to go and visit. It is stated that on experiencing this dream, she replied to the Lord, quote, Let me be buried on this most holy of islands, she replied to the Lord, unquote. St. Conra immediately departed her community in West Cork by foot, arriving many weeks later on the shoreline of Scattery Island. Her access onto the island was refused immediately by St. Sennan, citing his chastity vows. The County Cockborn saint debated with St. Sennan, quote, Christ came to redeem women, no less to redeem men. No less did he suffer for the sake of women than for the sake of men. No less than men, women enter into the heavenly kingdom. Why then should you not allow women in this place? Unquote. St. Sennan refused again. St. Connor rebuked the saint. Here on the shoreline of Scattery Island, I will stay until my death. But the waves will wash away your grave, St. Sinan replied. St. Connor replied back to the saint, Leave that to God. Sadly, due to the long journey from County Cork and the health of the old woman, she died on the shoreline of the holy island of Scattery Island 
in the year 530 AD after receiving communion from St. Sennan. St. Sennan and his holy monks buried the saint under a large slab on the shoreline of Scattery Island. Aidan of Lindisfarne, whose feast day was August 31st, was a disciple of St. Sennan. Aidan was a mentor for men and women. Did St. Sennan have a change of mind after St. Conora? We shall never know. St. Sennan died on the 8th of March, 544, and according to local sources, was buried within the confines of Temple Sennan. His grave a special one, as miracles have been associated with stones from his grave, which in local lore gives protection from various diseases and drowning. I took a boat trip a few years ago with a few friends to Scattery Island on Robert Stack's boat from Saline Pier in Ballylongford, North Kerry. What struck me from the quayside at Saline Pier was the fact that everyone was excited on where our voyage was going, a special place. It felt to me, as it did to others, that it was a pilgrimage. The boat cut through the still waters of the estuary with the historic ruins of Carrigafoy Castle in the distant mist, still defying time and tide. Entering the Shannon estuary, the boat bobbed up and down in the water as we made our way towards the Holy Island. As the mist settled, the image of a green island emerged. A round tower broke the estuary skyline. We were now nearing our arrival, the Scattery or Inishkohig. I thought to myself, this view would have been similar to what the Vikings encountered when they sailed up the estuary in those dark days of plunder. As the boat neared the quay, the views of the tower and all the monastic ruins were in full view. The lighthouse and the once-occupied village could be seen, now silent. I walked slowly along the grassy pathway, passing all previously whitewashed ruined houses. My thoughts were, who are these people? What was their life like here on the island? And the hands who built these houses? Today, now covered with ivy, their roofs now fallen in. The round tower stood proud from the landscape. As I walked through the round arched doorway, I could experience the feeling of peace. Looking upwards, where the upper wooden floors were once located, in the darkness I could see light from the windows on all the cardinal points. One could just imagine the monks in hiding in those ancient days. In the shadow of the round tower and abbey, I played a tune on my bagpipes for the memory of St. Senan and his mission and the islanders which once lived in this special place. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I will return again to Scattery Island in the future. Through its people, its heritage and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. I hope you've enjoyed our first Christmas show here on Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. I've enjoyed it here at the Ball of Winnown Studio of Winnown the Shunana Kunde Kiri. I would like to wish you and your family a very, very happy Christmas. And to all our Irish people living in the United States of America, Canada, England, Ireland, Australia, Italy, Germany, Sweden, South America, around the world. Happy Christmas to you all. I will see you all in the new year. But for now, Slán. Bye. 
for listening to our show. Through its people, its heritage and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Bye for now.